0: everybody. We have Randall Worley here this morning. Let's give it up for Randall. I was thinking back. We always say things like this. I was thinking back to when we met and it was at least 25 years ago. Isn't that right, Randall? And um, I have loved him from the beginning and grown to love him even more over the years. And Randall has a very unique perspective on things he 's um, he has profound insights but he's just he 's just a great guy let's let 's pray for him why don 't you stand up we 're going to pray for Randall Lord thank you so much for Randall and Peer, uh, Penny and his whole his whole family just such a great great family um, such a big part of what you 've done here in Charlotte over the years and now. Uh, All over our nation and other nations, we ask, Lord, that you would just release Randall to share his heart and your heart. Uh, I just pray, Lord, that we would just be receptive. We would hear uh, what you're saying today for us. But we bless you, Randall. We bless Penny. Uh, we, We bless the boys and their families, and we're so grateful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So grateful. Thank
1: you. I've always considered it a privilege to be able to come to Queen City over the last few years, and um, it's always been a great experience for me. I hope it has been for you. Um, Get back to me on that if you will later. I want to congratulate you on this new space that you're in. I am very, very familiar with over the years of pastoral ministry myself. Uh, what it's like to transition in new places, new spaces, and uh, discover new grace as well. And I'm just praying that uh, you'll continue to have this um, prolonged favor that you've had with the landlord here, um, because you serve the Lord of the land anyway. And I believe that that's, um, that's going to happen for you as you continue to grow and expand. And um you know, a lot of people go through things, but they uh, forget to grow through it. And that's not meant to sound like some pun. Um, we all have a problem or are a problem or surrounded by problems. Does that resonate with anybody? So uh, I, I just, I want to continue to grow through things, not just go through it. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn to First John, if you will, and I'll join you there in just a few moments. First John, and uh, as you're finding this little short epistle that comes toward the end of the New Testament, I heard a story about a fiery Pentecostal preacher not too far from here that was conducting on Sunday afternoon not long ago a baptismal service and uh, if you've ever been to one of those baptismal services that are out by the river, um, you know that it's a unique experience, to say the least. And there were a number of people that were being baptized, as well as family members that had come to witness the baptismal service, and it was, it was quite frenetic, to say the least. And there was a man that was walking down the road and saw this commotion that was going on, and he was extremely intoxicated. He had never seen a baptismal service before, so he decided that he'd walk down a little closer and investigate. Again, this is totally foreign to him. He's wondering why this man is pushing people under the water. So when he gets a little closer to the bank, to the bank there, uh, this Pentecostal preacher recognizes right away that this man is intoxicated. So, he grabs him by the hand and pulls him into the water. And he shoves him beneath the water. And when he pulls him up out of the water, he said, did you find Jesus? And the guy's coughing and gagging. And he he said, no. So he shoves him down the second time, pulls him back up. He said, did you find Jesus? He said, no. So he takes him down the third time. And this time he holds him for quite a long time. And the guy's thrashing and Squirming and finally pulls him up and he said, Did you find Jesus? He said, No, but wait a minute. If, if you'll tell me where you saw him go under last, I'll look the next time. <laughs> now, I have a certain affinity for the Apostle John. Uh, sometimes I find myself wondering whether my endearment toward him is even more so. Then the esteemed Apostle Paul that gives us so much of the New Testament. And there are many reasons that I won't get into as to why I gravitate toward the writings of John, these three short epistles as well as his gospel and the revelation that is intriguing and filled with amazing imagery. I feel like that John has so much to say for many reasons. He is known as the beloved Apostle or the Apostle of Love for a number of obvious reasons that you can see notated in the Gospels. But he waits until he's an older man to begin to write about his experience and the accumulation of truth. I, myself, in my evolution, and I'm not fearful, anyway, apprehensive about using the word evolution... In my evolution of understanding of truth, I am coming to the point where I have an experience of great delight when I discover that I've been wrong about something. Because when I discover that I've been wrong about something, it indicates to me that I'm still learning. I think it's true that we need to understand that God... Does not necessarily test us to see what we've learned as if he doesn't already know, but he tests us to see if we're still willing to learn. So here in 1st John, I'm going to read a number of verses, which is not very typical for me. But chapter 1 and verse 7, he said, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Now, if you'll look over in chapter 3 and verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because of his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. One more verse of Scripture in chapter 4 and verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I can't think of passages of Scripture that are more relevant than these that we've just read, especially with the vitriolic narrative that is constantly going on. This divisive spirit, the polarization that is so incredibly intense these days. And we become obsessed with who's right and who's wrong. I've come to understand that Between two people, there are at least three opinions. And I'm not saying that sound clever. When I say that between two people, there are at least three opinions, sometimes we become masters at missing the point because we are so obsessed with our defendedness and our need to protect and preserve our ego or our own perceived identity. Are you with me so far? Now, John strikes right at the heart, I think. It's a very palpable point that he makes for us, especially even though 2,000 years removed. Because the question is, who is our brother? If you were to title my teaching this morning, it would be that. Who is my brother? It's certainly easy for us to conclude or to assume that our brothers are a part of this special fraternity that follow the way, that are believers, that believe the same way that we do. But if you noticed a thread of these verses, and the, and you connected the dots, you saw in one of the passages that John refers to Cain. Now, the most biblically illiterate among us probably are aware of, at least to some degree, this ancient story, this primal story that comes in the opening pages of Scripture when two brothers are at odds with one another and that Cain rises up and attacks his brother and takes his life. I think maybe that's the reason why John would say that he is giving a new commandment, but in reality it's an old commandment that has been renewed. He's not just talking about the teachings of Jesus but he's referring to this event, this tragedy, this horrible tragedy that happens with the first family in all of Scripture. The most peaceable among us still have somewhere latent in our DNA this hatred that many times it's difficult for us to even understand the source of it. In an infant, you don't see that, but latent, even in the DNA of an innocent infant, there is this hatred that given the right circumstances, it will manifest, it will demonstrate itself. One of the problems that I'm concerned about, especially with the culture wars that are going on right now, is this sense of us having a difference or an otherness to us, that we derive our identity from so many of the things that are really, in truth, not at all a part of our identity. Think of it for a moment. What gives you your identity? And see, identity has been something that has been a topic of great interest in the church, especially in the last 15, 20 years, people coming to this self-awareness, this Discovery of who they are in Christ. And that's important. But I'm convinced that it's become very individualistic and almost narcissistic. It has, in some ways, had the opposite effect of what it should have had that causes me to feel more distinct and different than you, especially if you are a pre-believer. What is it that makes up my identity? Well, obviously, I'm a male. I'm a man. But it's not my machismo. It's not my masculinity that really is the root of my identity. I'm a white man. Not only am I a white man, I'm a heterosexual man. My identity has been shaped as yours has been shaped by my accomplishments, my academia, the people that I know. The things that I own, all those things contribute to what I think is my identity. And in reality, these are the things that cause us subconsciously to be at odds with one another because even though we know the scripture teaches us that it's, that it's, it's not wise to compare ourselves, inherently that is in us to compare ourselves with others. Now, I understand that where I'm going in the next few minutes uh, involves a measure of risk. I'm not unfamiliar with risk. I really believe, though, that, you know, this uh, virtual elephant that remains in the room has to be addressed. It has to be addressed through the lens of grace. It has to be addressed through the lens of unconditional love. It has to be addressed through the teachings of Jesus, not the Western interpretation of the teachings of Jesus that continues to fuel the fire of separateness and this distinction. I was talking this past week in Fort Lauderdale about this, and um, it occurred to me, that when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that usually the reference to that verse of scripture still is very self-centered and self-absorbed. How could that be? I can do all things through Christ. That's usually the tone that it has. Forgetting that when he says, I can do all things through Christ, that when he uses that term, This is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. He's referring to the corporal nature of the body of Christ and not the individual nature of the believer. I can only do all things in my consciousness of my connectedness with the body of Christ. That's the only way that I can do all things. Otherwise, again, it reverts back to this self-absorbed thinking. Now, I know that there are many of you that may be still wondering what it is I'm saying. Where am I going with this? Well, who is your brother? Really? I think it's the Apostle Paul that makes it clear in Acts chapter 17 that we were all, the entire human race, is of one blood. It doesn't take um, any deep research for you to conclude that regardless of our skin pigment, regardless of the language that we speak, regardless of where we live on the blue ball called earth, wherever we came from, we all originated with the progenitor of the entire human race, which is Adam. That in itself should be cause for us to begin to reflect on these things that we perceive as being differences. So many of the people that I have considered to be enemies in my life, I've come to discover that they are only my enemies because I don't know their story. I I said this a few days ago, and I got some pushback for it, and that that let me know I was on the right track. When I said that my enemies are not God's enemies because God is not even the enemy of his enemies. (laughs) And uh, when I made that statement... Somebody went into the Old Testament to retrieve a passage of scripture to retort that. I think Gerard was right when he said when humans cannot or dare not take their anger out on the thing that has caused it, they unconsciously search for substitutes. The scapegoating, this need to blame, that Jesus came and absorbed all of that to take that excuse away from us. When will we learn the wisdom of Solomon when he says that love is stronger than death? What do you think Solomon was thinking when he made that statement? Do you think that he had some revelatory insight into the power of the resurrection. I think sometimes when we are reading the passages of Scripture that detail to us the activity of Jesus as he's appearing and disappearing during those 40 days that he makes himself alive, shows himself alive by many infallible proofs. He, again, is appearing and disappearing. Uh, That we only see Jesus appearing to those that were his followers and those that were his his supporters. And the scripture is clear about that. But there's also historical evidence that corroborates that Jesus even appeared to Pilate and to Caiaphas, the men that were responsible for sentencing him to death, which gives a whole new meaning to what Solomon said when he said, love is stronger than death. I really don't need historical evidence to prove to me that that happened because that's the way Jesus was. If he is hanging in those last few hours, gasping for breath and saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. Essentially, this is insanity, what they're doing to me. Yet I will absorb it because love is stronger than death. And I know that when I come through on the other side of this, because I will not permit them to become my enemies, because I understand that this is not about the love of power, but the power of love. And I know that when I go through this thin veil of flesh and I come out on the other side, I'm going to reveal to them the power of love and let them see that you thought you killed me. You thought you murdered me, but love cannot be killed. This is such a radical paradigm. It's not even a paradigm shift. It's the demolishing of our paradigms. Did you notice that John would say there, go back if you will, I i wished I had more time to unravel this even more. But when he says here that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Would you agree that most of us tend to be blind to what we're blind to? It's not so much what's going on in front of my eyes as much as what is going on behind my eyes that is influencing my thoughts. I travel in a in a culture where people are all, have almost and I'm, I I want to say this with all due respect because I know, again, this can be risky. I travel in a culture where people have almost become manifestation junkies. Do you know what I mean by that? They're forever seeking encounters. And uh, I, I'm not in any way minimizing the value of that. I've had my share of encounters that I'm thankful for. But I tend to believe in the days ahead that the encounters that we're going to have with the resurrected Lord, the incarnate Christ, the personification of unconditional love that is going to come through people that are so completely other than us that at first it evokes in us a revulsion for them. I knew that that wouldn't get applause. But I'm convinced of that. I'm having this experience myself. And I think that we can make a case for it again in referencing the resurrection appearances of the Lord. You know, in John, he says that he was always appearing in another form. They weren't quite sure what form that he would reveal himself in. And he even said in Matthew 25, he said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and so on. And they said, when did that happen? He was speaking prophetically, wasn't he? He was speaking of how that he would appear as a gardener. Mary was surprised. She supposed that he was the gardener. The truth is that he was the gardener. He's always been a gardener. It started in a garden and it ends in a garden. And then he will appear as a fisherman in the early morning light on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And then he will appear as a stranger to two men or Two people that are walking on the road to Emmaus, and they don't even recognize him, even though their hearts were burning within them. Again, I I just feel that in the in the next few months that lay before us, that it's going to be very very important for us to ask for significant upgrades in our in our discernment. You know, in the next few weeks, we're going to be celebrating the Advent. And um, I love all the stories that orbit around the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. One in particular that comes to mind now, though, is when this aged old man, Zacharias, he is in the temple and here comes a peasant couple. More than likely, there were many other couples that were bringing... I said Zacharias, I meant Simeon. So there were more than likely many other peasant couples that were bringing their infants as Joseph and Mary were. Jesus is eight days old. He's being brought there to be circumcised and Actually, that's when he would receive the pronouncement of his name. This couple is, there's nothing striking about them. Uh, Their clothing would reflect that they were very common. And this eight-pound bundle of hope that they are carrying does not have a halo about his head. They're not angels as there were eight days prior announcing, as they did to the shepherds, this is the Son of God, the Savior. But Simeon, he saw this couple, and when he saw the infinite, he began to rejoice and say that his eyes had seen the salvation of the Lord, the consolation of Israel. He was able to discern in an eight-day-old baby what he would become. You say, well, you know, you're you're talking about Jesus. Well, no, I'm also talking about understanding how this principle applies to every single human being on this planet that bears the image of God. This is troublesome to some people and smacks of too much inclusion and almost makes them fearful of universalism. But I wonder where is our faith? I wonder when believers will begin to stop believing what they see and start seeing what they believe. When they will begin to see in those image bearers. And there's not one. There's not one human being that you know, even the ones that you have the the greatest aversion for, There's not one of them that is not stamped with the very image of God. It's just been marred. It's been obscured. He's asking us as co-creators. He's asking us who bear his image to be able to see his image in others. This is truly the nature of what discernment should look like. I'm I'm reminded uh, a lot these days as I begin to think these thoughts that I think it was Spurgeon said, you teach best what you need to learn the most. And I have had a number of encounters just in the last few weeks, almost ambushed by them, by people that were so different and other than me. And I get this nudge from the Lord, you just met me, but you didn't recognize me. I walked away from it with my heart burning within me. There is a spirit of reconciliation. There is a spirit of reconciliation that is coming unlike anything we have ever experienced before. And as it's been said, by some of the patriarchs of revival, the greatest enemy of God has always been, of the present move of God, has always been the previous move of God. I am convicted by that and know that if I don't continue to evolve in my thinking and, and not live in this arrogant assumption that I have already come to every conclusion that could could be come to, as it relates to the ultimate intention of God. Separateness is the greatest lie that we have ever believed. It started in a garden. The illusion that they were separate from God and when they begin to ingest that fallacy, instantaneously, instantaneously, there was this sense of separation between the two most pristine human beings that have ever lived outside of Jesus. Why did they even bother? Why was there this sense of modesty, this sense of shame, this need to begin to design clothing to cover their nakedness? Because the The lie of separation from God and subsequently the lie of separation from one another. I wonder if we've ever read the the words of the apostle Paul that talks about how that all things are created by him and for him. I'm even learning, maybe this is going to be, sound a little bizarre to some of you. I'm, I'm, I'm learning to see him even more in the inanimate I'm learning to see that if everything was created by the word of his power and the cohesive nature of everything in the manifested world at the very molecular level is the word of God. And it causes me, am I making sense to you? It causes me to begin to see him even in those things that prior to that, I had no idea, bore his image. Why is it that God bothered anyway to create the human race? Why did he bother to to create this species called humans? Was it because after eons he had gotten to the point that he was somewhat bored with the myriad of angels that were giving him endless adoration? and So he decided, I'm going to create a different type of species that will be able to give me more adequate homage. Is that why he did it? Oh, was it because he had this idea that I'm going to create the universe and I'm going to create a planet called Earth and uh, I'm going to need someone as a custodian to keep up that planet that I've created? Oh no, maybe here's an idea because God at his very core is a judge and so I must create a fallible species and a law that I know that they will break so that I will have someone to judge. That's what I'll do. Is that why he set it all in motion? Is that why he created it? He is so self-absorbed No, that's not what unconditional love is. But we think he's so self-absorbed that he has to have that. I mean, do you realize that the first picture of worship is not man worshiping God or adoring God, but God adoring and worshiping his creation? When he forms man from the dust of the earth and breathes in his nostrils the breath of life and he becomes a living soul, the Scripture says that he blessed them. And the word blessed there means to adore. The first one on his knees was not man, but the first one on his knees was God over his creation. That's problematic for a lot of people. (laughs) let Let me make it practical for you. When you have a child, this child is the product of your love, and you hold it in your arms... You're not thinking because this child is made in your image. You're not thinking one day, one day you will appreciate me. One day you'll grow up and you will be fully aware of why you are here. No. No, you adore that child, don't you? Are you listening to me now? You adore that child. This in no way, see, we've got it all wrong about the nature of God. This in no way makes these, there is not any hint of jealousy in him. We have the three in one, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that place of infinity, in that place of eternity, and in that relationship, because that's what God is, is relationship. In that relationship, and and it's amazing to me how that religion has, has taken the distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit. Even when we make mention of them, it has to be in that particular order, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in our darkened minds, we see, even though we say with our mouths, that they are equal in every way. Just in saying Father, Son, and Spirit, we have made one subordinate to the other because we're so linear in our thinking. And we don't understand that in that infinite world of eternity, that in that relationship, it naturally brought about the birthing of something made in its image, which is man. Now, I'm going to try to find some place here to make my closing argument. Hatred. It's so so senseless, isn't it? Most of the time, we're not even aware of why we feel the way we feel. We're all caught up in this mimetic exercise without even being conscious of it. We're imitating what other people are reflecting to us. And we think that's normal. And we've lived in something that is abnormal for so long, thinking that it is normal, that when we hear normalcy, it doesn't hit our ears right. The four most important words in the Bible. You want to know what they are? You want to know what they are? You don't? I'll, I'll tell some other group then. The, f- the four most important words in the Bible are in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The narrative did not begin with the failure of man, even though Most of us haven't interpreted the ultimate intentions of God by starting in the third chapter of this book, trying to conclude what he really ultimately wanted to do. It's like going to a very complicated movie and arriving 30 minutes late and you're trying to catch up with the plot. Everything else that is said after that has, even though it was inspired, has been influenced by man's perceptions. Perception, I'm convinced, is everything. The way I see things are not at all the way they are, but I think they are. And so I, until I can get back to his ultimate intention in the beginning God, or if I, I could, I don't think that I am taking Interpretive uh, liberty here, if I were to say, in the beginning, unconditional love. In the beginning, unconditional love. And it gives, you know, even more meaning to what uh, John is saying, you know, that if you don't love your brother, if you hate your brother, you're living in darkness because it was in the beginning. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, And God said, let there be what? Light. He might as well say, let there be love. If you've read first John, you see that he is forever interchanging love and light, love and light, love and light. Maybe ignorance is our deepest secret. And it remains that way because we are afraid of potential Answers so we won't ask really hard questions. Maybe that's when he's talking about light and darkness. That's He's not just talking about when the sun comes up and disappears over the horizon. He's talking about the darkness that exists here. How many times have you stared at something for a long, long time, trying to understand it, and you said... uh, Finally, oh, I see it. No. You were seeing it before. You just weren't perceiving it. That's the difference, isn't it? I'm learning something new about respect. The other day, I, I, I was just ruminating on that word. I, lo- I love words. And... um So it was, it was just resonating in my head. Respect. Re. Re. Spect. So I, I looked a little further and I found out that, of course, re means again. But spect, spectacle, spectacles. The Latin word spectar, which means to see. It means to look again and again and again, and again. So, if I am to experience this great royal law, James would call it the royal law of love, the law that transcends all other laws, if I'm to experience it, then I have to, with intention, learn to look at those things and those people around me that seem to be so distorted to look again and again and again, because somewhere beneath all that is the image of God, is the image of God. Now, there are a lot of people that are convinced that the days ahead of us are just going to continue to deteriorate and and um it depends on what side of the political aisle that you're on on that. And I, you know, I'm just, anybody else weary of that? Honestly, I am. I'm entitled to be weary of it. But I understand that as you transcend, you have to include as well because this is what reflects true intelligent humility. But I, I have hope that in the days ahead, that we're going to experience an unveiling, an unveiling of his kingdom that is unlike anything that we have ever known. We have ever known. And it will offend you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how many of you right now, you passionately, passionately believe certain things that at one time you were convinced was heretical, Don't everybody respond at the same time? (laughs) Now you understand my statement earlier that I've learned to rejoice and delight in my discovery that I've been wrong because it means I'm still learning. Maybe Jesus didn't come to answer our questions as much as he came to question all of our answers anyway. Could it be this simple that the real Relative or relevant message for the days ahead come from the writings of somebody like John? I think so. I will tell you that I'm encountering this not just in this country but around the world. The emerging generation are tired and worn out and want to say, talk to the hand. At all of this divisive, polarizing rhetoric. And I'm, I I believe that really that wisdom is not proprietary to the aged. Maybe the wisdom that we seek today is going to come from those that maybe don't have the same experience we do. Or even the years of maturation. Maybe that's the way God is going to appeal to us in humility. Will you listen? Will you listen? Is everybody okay? I'm done. You can stand. You can can stand. Not that you need my permission. Some of my friends have been concerned about me lately because I've, I've been talking a lot about contemplation. And when you say contemplation, and some, some might not even be aware of it, when you say contemplation these days, a lot of people tend to think that uh, you're drifting off into Catholicism because um, our Catholic brethren, uh, they teach a lot about contemplation. The great contemplative mystics, I'm I think, have something to teach us. There are many voices in this world, the apostle Paul would say. God is not the author of confusion. There are many voices in this world, none of them without signification. There's, there's such a cacophony of confusion that is going on right now. And as John Mayer says, they own all the news and they can bend it all they want as we're waiting on the world to change. And the world that has to change is not the one out here, but the world is the system and the arrangement of thinking that exists between our temples. And the only way that I, I think that we're going to be able to see the transformation, because really maybe the change that we are wanting in other people is the change that must first occur in us. Did you hear what I said? Maybe the change that you want in other people. You're, I mean, let's just bring it down even to... Uh, you know, the dysfunction in our families, the strife and the tension that is in our families. Is it possible that maybe you are culpable in that situation as well? <laughs> oh, I'm talking to myself as well. You know, Is it possible that I'm culpable in this situation? This might be. That's going to require some humility, a greater degree of humility, isn't it? So when I mention contemplation, this has to do with us shutting up. (laughs) It has to do with us centering. It has to do with us just sitting with Jesus and waiting for him to begin to speak and to whisper transcendent ideas into the core of who we are. We've made prayer so much about petition. We've made prayer so much about acquisition and the things that you know we think we need. And most of the time, the things we think we need, we don't need at all. They're just perceived needs. They're not real needs. And so in contemplation is being still. You know, this is tough for charismatics, but it's the only way to know God, according to Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. And even Paul would say to study to be quiet. We study to know things rather than studying to be quiet. (laughs) <laughs> well somebody's got to speak up somebody's got to speak out well maybe we're not given permission to speak up and speak out until we shut up and shut down because he is not heard as the prophet would say he's not heard in the earthquake and he's not heard in the violet windstorm but it's in a still small voice that that Causes us to plumb deeper into spirituality than we've ever known before. This is, this is where peace, this is where peace resides. It's there. So can I pray for you? Father, we ask for your eyes. We ask, because we know that you live within us that you would begin to see through us and see for us. We ask that somehow, like the imagery that is given to us in the revelation of who you are, eyes like fire. That is not our eyes of vengeance and vindictiveness. That is the eyes... Lord, that are able to penetrate every veneer and every facade and every false self. That is the kind of vision we're asking for. To see through it all. And even the people, Lord, that again, that we have unconsciously developed the most intense disdain for, may we see through that. We see through that, through that mask that has been created by their fear and by their ego. And we can see, Lord, to the core of who they are, which is where you reside, where the real light is. I'm asking for that. I'm asking that you would deliver us from our stigmatism. I'm asking you that you would deliver us from our myopic vision. That we begin to see through this, Lord. And that the encounters are waiting us everywhere, coming through everyone. And we say yes to it. We say yes to it. Can you say yes to it? We say yes to it. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You've been so gracious to me this morning. I went seven minutes over.
2: Man, um, that was good, but it wasn't just good. That was really, really important. That was a really important message. I want to share something that happened to me this morning. Um, my my boys woke up at quarter to um, quarter to six this morning and started jumping off the bed, and they turned all the lights on in the house. And they've done this for days, right? For weeks actually. And finally, we we've been telling them that if. If they keep it up, we're going to take something away. So this morning, I sat the two boys down on the bed and I told them that because of the way they acted this morning and um, they were inconsiderate to the rest of the house, that I was taking Pokemon away from them. And you have never seen two more broken-hearted people in your life. And immediately they turned against each other. They started. They started talking to each other about how it was the other person's fault. To the point where uh, they decided not to be brothers anymore this morning. I said, I'm not going to be your brother. I don't want to be your brother. I'm not your brother anymore. You know, I mean, literally, we had that conversation this morning with, uh, with my kids. And I thought, that's never, I mean, we've had problems. Don't get me wrong. But we've never had that happen with that type of language before. And it's like, I mean, you know, they're kids. They're going through the thing. I did the same thing with my brothers, you know, and we got in fights when we were young. But I thought this was really interesting that Randall was speaking this message this morning, and I woke up dealing with my two boys saying they didn't want to be brothers anymore. They didn't want to be friends anymore. They didn't want to know each other anymore, and they're both blaming each other because sometimes when disappointment hits, the first thing you want to do is point the finger at somebody else. And I'm really sick of what's happened in this political season between family members between friends, between church members. I don't know if you just get on Twitter for a second and you see people who are actually related to each other, fathers and daughters. You see brothers and sisters, brothers against brothers, friends against friends, the worst language, the most terrible things people are saying about each other. But I believe this is that politics haven't caused this to happen. It's become a magnifying glass for what was actually going on in our hearts already. And I actually believe this is that if you're super excited about the election, then something's wrong. And if you're super bummed about the election, something's wrong. If you have either one of those feelings, you've given too much power to human beings. And Jesus, when he was in the garden, when he, at that moment when he was asking the Lord, Jesus Christ was asking God the Father, if there's any other way out of this, would you get me out? Right? His other prayer was, Lord, let my people be one. His prayer was for unity. When he was sweating blood at his most difficult moment, he was praying for unity. And so I really believe that there's something happening, and I believe we need to pray for unity. And I think we need to stop pointing the finger at one another when disappointment happens, and we need to take a moment, a contemplative moment. And let the Lord point the finger at us. This isn't about politics. This isn't about the internet. This is about what I believe has been going on all along. And this is just the stirring of the water. And the Lord is showing us what's actually going on inside our hearts. And my dream for this church is that we would be an example. And that we would be a a bastion of unity and light. I wrote this this morning as Randall was speaking. Darkness is not punishment for not loving your brother or sister, but not loving is darkness. God doesn't just get angry at you for not doing what he wants you to do. You are literally turning off the light by not loving. That's why you can't have one and the other. It's not a choice that the Lord puts on you. It's not his reward or punishment. It is what it is. Love is the light. Not trying to re-preach Randall's message because it's way too good. (laughs) But I feel this. So let's take a moment and let's all raise a hand together. Some sort of act of unity here. And you know what? I'm just going to be the voice. If you want to agree with me, this would be, this would be awesome. Lord Jesus, I just want to repent for the disunity in the church. Not just our church, but the church of the United States, Lord Jesus, the church of the world. I don't know. I just want to repent for the lack of unity, Lord. I just want to repent for turning the light off. I just want to repent for the, the angry feelings and thoughts that I've had towards, towards other brothers and sisters, towards other people. And Lord, I want to ask you to help us turn the light back on. And that you would teach us to see one another, to re-see, to respect, to again to see, to see again one another. Let's just take a moment and let that set in.